Well, Father, we come before you, and it is just such a privilege to gather with the saints. This is my favorite day of the week. It's also a privilege that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. It is revelation. And I pray that as you reveal yourself, Lord, that um, we will have a purer, more wonderful vision of you, that we'll have a greater understanding of how you interact with the universe and with our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Is Asbury a revival? Have you heard that question? I've been hearing it for about a month. Uh, even this conference I went to, the question came up, is Asbury a revival? Now, some of you are thinking, what's an Asbury? Well, it's actually the name of a uh, a Christian college uh, in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, by all means evangelical and conservative. About a month ago, a, a revivalist spoke to the students during chapel, invited some to come forward. Many of them did, and they stayed in the chapel. They camped out in the chapel. They overnighted in the chapel, and after a few days, even set up coffee stations in the chapel. And what were they doing in the chapel? Well, they were singing, they were praying, uh, giving personal testimonies. People heard about it. They would travel in from miles around. People from other Christian colleges would come, take what they learned at Asbury and take it back to their Christian college and kind of see the, the same event. And, and after about two and a half weeks, the administration of Asbury decided to, let's go ahead and Close it down. Now, there's a lot of press coverage about it. People wondering, is this a revival? Uh, was, was this a genuine revival? And so, you have to ask yourself a question. Well, what is a revival? And I have a definition here. A revival occurs when there is increased spiritual interest and renewal that impacts the life of the church, congregation, or society. Were these students spiritually awakened? Did the Holy Spirit change and transform them? Or, or is this a case of emotional contagion? Or is it some of both? Was it a, a, a revival? Now, when you go back to the time of Jesus, you might think that there was a revival going on when he was walking through Palestine, teaching and preaching the Word of God, there were growing, swelling crowds that were all intrigued by him. And from the outside, you might say, this is clearly a revival. But Jesus' teaching in Luke 8, 4 through 15, gives some important qualifiers, where he focuses not so much on Revival, but how is the heart revived? So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And, the and as it grew, 
it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew out and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but then having no root, they believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... There are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. And for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Right. This is known as the parable of the sower, and it comes at a pretty interesting time in Jesus' ministry. Right. Jesus has, has this growing popularity with the masses and with the crowds, and simultaneous to this, there's a growing disdain from the spiritual elites of Israel. They're suspicious of this person. Perhaps the crowds are following the wrong Messiah, and if he is not who he's cracked up to be, the Romans might come and quash the rebellion, and hurt our prospects of ever returning to the golden age of Israel. Right? So some were growing excited and some were growing skeptical, cynical, and this became a dangerous situation. So Jesus, as he's looking at this gathering crowd that is swelling, he says something, but not directly. He actually uses a very obscure he obscures it through a parable. He disguises the word of God. And it's almost like he's testing this crowd to see if they are truly being revived or not. Now, as we go through this, we are going to see how Jesus disguises the word of God. And then Jesus explains the reason for the disguise. And then Jesus explains who receives God's word. And when we go to the last part, he talks about who actually receives the word of God, which is uh, those, you know, those who receive the God basically have a good heart as distinguished by a hardened heart, a shallow heart, a divided heart. And then you have the good heart. And, and so the whole point that Jesus is trying to make is he's not concerned about the crowds. He's not concerned about the size of a spiritual movement. What he is most concerned about is the impact of the Word of God on the heart of the listener. And as he does so, 
there is kind of this haunting question. He's not concerned about whether or not Asbury is a revival or if a revival is going on here. What he's most concerned about, what I'm most concerned about, what God is most concerned about is, has your heart been revived by the Word of God? Right? Every Sunday, we sit under the teaching of the Word of God. And why? Because we're hoping that something happens. When your heart, when a heart encounters the Word of God, what happens? That's the overall lesson of this parable. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work through the structure of this parable. You're going to see how he disguises the word, explains the reason for the disguise, and then explain who receives God's word. And I want you to ask this question. How does my heart respond to the word of God? So let's look at how Jesus disguises the word. Verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. Now, what's really interesting about this is, is Jesus is making a strategic change. Before, Jesus would be pretty straightforward. He'd give very clear commands. Turn the other cheek. Practice the golden rule. He would explain his identity by using clear propositions and interpretations from, uh, from the Old Testament. How he's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But now he is switching tactics and using a parable. Now, a parable is a true-to-life story that conveys some spiritual meaning, usually about the kingdom of God. You would have different characters, and each of these characters uh, would have some sort of meaning associated with them, and then there would be an overall meaning to the parable. And Jesus uses some stock imagery. For instance, when he talks about a father or a master or a king, that would refer to God. Uh, when he would talk about the, uh, a feast or a celebration, that would be the messianic banquet. When he would talk about uh, a harvest, that was often uh, used to talk about judgment. And then he'd add some other elements that were just not necessarily to be interpreted allegorically, so much as just to add some realism uh, to the story. Now, what's really interesting about this is that Jesus begins to change tactics by introducing a new form of teaching, a parable. And so he starts out with this parable, which is using imagery that everybody would understand. He starts with, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed. And so the imagery is uh, some farmer either has like a basket of seed and he's just spreading it out indiscriminately and generously all over. Or perhaps uh, he had a, a pack mule or a, or a donkey and he'd put the, he would put a bag of seed with a little hole on the you know, bottom corner and just kind of lead it around the field. So the sower's going out to sow. And as he sows, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Right, All these fields were interconnected, and you often accessed them by a footpath. Sometimes they'd have hardened clay, uh, perhaps uh, kind of rocks at the bottom. And when the, the seed fell on this, it, it never penetrated. It's like falling on asphalt. They would be trampled underfoot. Perhaps the uh, birds of the air would seize an opportunity for an easy meal, and it would be gone. 
And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it has no soil. Right? This is shallow soil with bedrock underneath. It'd be similar to what we have in the Flint Hills. Right? And, and so the seeds, when they would grow, all the growth would shoot up because it couldn't go down. It couldn't penetrate the bedrock. And so if you're a rookie farmer, you think, man, I'm having a great harvest here. Look at it. It's just springing up. But of course, when it can't get access to the water that it needs, it withers and dies. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. So some of the seed goes over weedy soil, and these weeds could grow to be six feet high. What monsters, right? They would have thorns, they would bloom flowers, and when the weeds were there, it choked off everything. There was no possibility for real growth. And some, verse 8, fell into the good soil and yielded a hundredfold. And this is the payoff. Normal yields would be 35 per wheat stock. But this one is a hundred. A rich, bountiful harvest. And then Jesus, after telling this parable, says, He who has ears, let him hear. Have at it. Now, we all know what this parable means because it was decoded for us. Now imagine if you heard this for the first time. Okay, so the seed is the law of Moses and the sower is Moses, maybe, right? And, uh, and maybe um, it's about people reaching their potential by applying the law of Moses, Right? There is no clear understanding of this as shown by the fact that the disciples go to Jesus and say, um, so Jesus, what are you talking about? What, um, can you help us out here? Right? So they go and, and they talk to him because basically this parable is mysterious. And this is what he says. He explains the reason for the disguise. And when the disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, to you, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are imparable so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the key phrase is to you. The disciples don't know what the parable means. But they know who does. And so they go to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, do you think you could explain this parable to us? And when Jesus says, to you, he says, this parable is meant for you. To you has been given the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, that term mystery... It basically speaks of of information about God that cannot be discerned through natural means, right? You think about, you know, Indiana Jones or some movie archaeologist who finds some sort of inscription, and, you know, through their understanding of anthropology and linguistics, they're able to decode and discern this message, Or perhaps 
they're able to look under the microscope and find something in the, the etching that conveys the hidden meaning, right? But the thing about the use of mysteries or secret is no amount of human research or understanding can discern its actual meaning. The only way to decode a mystery is to have it revealed by the one who gave the mystery. The answer key, the cipher, is Jesus. Only Jesus can explain the mystery. And Jesus is very selective in who he gives the mystery to. Who will he explain this mystery is up to his discretion, and he has his reasons. Now, previously, there's this buildup, and there's all this suspicion about Jesus. All, he has some very powerful enemies. And so it makes sense that he begins to switch towards more mysterious phraseology. He, he is speaking in parables because all these people are trying to trap him and use his words against him. And so there's a practical benefit of using parables where they can't use his words against them because he can't even understand them. But there is another reason for this. This is for his disciples. And they can understand it only through being initiated into his kingdom, his community as ruled by him. See, many of these, these parables are kind of like stained glass windows. From the outside, stained glass windows are not that impressive. I mean, they look nice, but to appreciate the fullness and the beauty of a stained glass window, what do you have to do? You have to go inside the church, and then you say, wow. See, these parables can only be accessed from the inside. You go inside the church. You go inside belief and faith in Christ, and then I see it now. He's selective. But for others, well, he says, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. He's quoting Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet to a stubborn and rebellious people. He has this vision of God. He's commissioned by God to, to basically preach a message that nobody wants to believe. And ultimately, Isaiah's message about the glories of God that is rejected is almost a form of judgment for their rebellion. In this case, you have people who have hardened their hearts. They have decided, I will take a pass on Jesus. And the only reason why they're listening to him now is to try to figure out a way to get rid of him. And so Jesus is saying, not so fast. I am actually going to judge you by hiding my message from you. Once you turn your heart away from me, God is going to harden your heart. These parables are a form of judgment. For those who are initiated, it's beautiful, wonderful. God is revealing mysteries. For those who have turned from Jesus, the word is now hardening their hearts. See, ultimately, this is a form of sifting. As these great crowds, he's sifting them with the teaching of the word. Now, years ago, my family and I had a chance to visit uh, Becky's sister in Northern California, near Gold Country, and we went to Sutter's Mill. 
You know Sutter's Mill? That's where they first discovered gold in 1849. And being the greedy sucker that I am, I went panning for gold. Didn't find anything. That's why I'm still here. I'm still driving my old cars. Just so you know how it ends. But it's a very interesting process. Right? You have the pan, and you scoop some dirt in it, and then you put some water, and you kind of agitate it. And that kind of separates some of the lighter elements from the heavier, kind of substitute around, and then you kind of splash it out. And you do that whole process over and over and over again so that all the light material is there. And when you look, you'd see the heavier elements like gold, theoretically, as I found out. But theoretically, that's how you find it. Well, parables work the same way. They're a sifting mechanism where Jesus uses this difficult teaching to sift the true disciples or true disciples from the from the pretenders. And this is super evident in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 in that gospel this is really presented as the high point of Jesus's ministry. He's feeding the 5000, he has people chasing him, he goes across the lake, they follow him. They are all about Jesus. But then he starts to say some pretty difficult things, right? Can you imagine you're in the audience, want to hear what Jesus says, and he stands up and he says what we read in John 6, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, wait. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, he wants us to become a cult of vampires. What? is this cannibalism whoa whoa and then in john 6 60 when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to this like they don't want to even take the time to figure out exactly what he meant john 6 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them right that was it that was all it took. Man, what you're saying, I don't get it. And they didn't want to get it. They wanted a free meal. They wanted what Jesus could give them. They didn't want Jesus. And they all left with the exception of who? With the exception of the 12, right? Jesus is panning for the true disciples. So there's a method here. He is actually doing some, some sifting. And for those who hear God's word, right, is met with different reactions. Sometimes when God's word is preached, there are things that are very difficult to understand. How can a good God allow evil to exist? How, how can a God who is loving send people to hell forever? Why does God condemn certain activities why has God structured the family in this way? Why is there only a narrow road that leads to life, but a broad road that leads to destruction? And some people will hear that and think, oh, man, that's just, forget about it. Well, others will go to Jesus and say, help me understand. Right? So Jesus is making a statement here by speaking in parables. But he does want his disciples to understand it, doesn't he? That's why he gives the explanation of who exactly will receive God's word. He's giving them a grid to filter different responses to the gospel, helping them to understand 
how God's word impacts the heart. So going to point three, Jesus explained who receives God's word. We see in verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. It doesn't focus on the sower so much as the seed. The sower could be the disciples. It could be Jesus. But it's a word of God. It's the good news that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus conquered death and sin by dying on the cross and rising again. He is the Messiah. He is the king who will come back and, and rule the nations. And all who believe in him, have faith in him, will reign with him. Right? It's the good news of the gospel. And this sower is being spread throughout the land. And it lands on different soils, the first one being a hardened heart. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So these are people who hear the word of God and it just ding. Or it stays there and it's crushed, or the birds take it away. These are the people who, when they stand before the Lord, say, I never heard the gospel. Well, they didn't because their ears were stopped and their heart was hardened. Because Satan, the evil one, takes away the seed, helps them to forget about it, or, or drowns it out with so many lies and deceptions that it never penetrates their heart. They have a disdain for Christianity. Have you ever talked to people like this? Oh, man. I've done some funerals. I remember one in particular. I was doing a funeral for an unbeliever. And when I pivoted to the gospel, I just saw this guy who just kind of gave the, well, there we go. And he just put down his head, just angry, just making it very clear, I'm not listening to anything you say, Pastor. Right? There was an anger there. Like, you can't even get into the gospel conversation. They don't want to hear it. Then there's others where maybe it's not anger, but just straight apathy. remember sharing the gospel on on an airplane with a lady from Sweden. And I asked her, do you ever think about what happens when you die? Nope. Like, never. No. Do you ever think about God? No. Would you like to? I mean, it was just like, what country do you live in? Well, the answer was Sweden. But, but it's just complete apathy. I mean, there's people where they honestly might have heard the gospel, but it just bounces off. I mean, in Jesus' time, who were these people? It describes them Pharisees as enemies. They didn't listen to understand. They listened to accuse. They listen to try to trap him. Very dangerous state. That's what happens. There's no growth whatsoever. But you do see some growth with the shallow heart. Verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. I mean, these are the new crops on the rocky soil, right? The, the sun warms them, and because they can't grow down, they grow straight up, and you look at them, and you think, they're just on fire for Jesus. They're reading their Bible. They're excited. They're inviting people to church. 
You look at the rest of the church and you think, you guys are a bunch of slobs. Be like this person over here. Oh, they, they get it. And then something happens. The cost is too great. They're called to do something they don't want to do. And it's over. I remember helping out a young single mother at this church. It was years ago. And she was eager. She was excited. She was teachable. She was willing to break up with her unbelieving boyfriend, do the right thing. All was set up, and then, boom, she disappeared. And I think it was Becky who ran into her at Walmart. And she just saw her, turned away. Do you remember this? And just, Becky overheard her say, it's just too hard. That was it. That was it. Yeah, the times of trial or tribulation when they actually had to pay the cost of following Jesus, you kind of saw that the word was just received in shallow soil. It never took deep root, and it wilted and fell away. Then you have the divided heart. Verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear... But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. In this case, the world doesn't threaten the person, doesn't intimidate them into disbelief. It seduces them. It calls on them to focus on the world and not Christ. The cost is too great. The most famous example of this in the Gospel of Luke is a rich young ruler. Remember, he had everything. He had riches, he had wealth, and he had an interest and a curiosity in Jesus, so much so that he goes to Jesus. He finds Jesus and goes to him and says, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus goes through all these commandments, and the rich young ruler says, sounds good to me because I've done all of them. And then Jesus says in Luke 18, 22, one thing you still lack, so all that you have... And distribute to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You know those riches you love? Why don't you give those away? But when he heard this, these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. All right, this young man walked away because he loved his weeds. He loved his weeds. In my years of ministry, I've seen people who were, who were pretty troubled by their sin. They don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to change their life. They like to have a form of Christianity that fits into their schedule, that fits into their priorities, that allows them to still sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend, that allows them to spend all their money on themselves, that allows them to keep their Sundays free. They want a form of Christianity that does not demand that they testify to the glories of God to other people. Uh, they want to have a relationship with God that allows them to keep, you know, looking at porn. They want to keep their relationship with God casual. They want to add Jesus to their life. They don't want him to determine their life. And eventually, they'll have to choose, right? No one could serve two masters. And so maybe they'll say, I'm a Christian, but undercover. Or perhaps have a form of Christianity that allows them to still have a come-to-Jesus moment and believe that because I did that, I'm definitely a Christian, even though I'm living for the world. And then finally, you have the good heart, verse 15. 
As for that, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So when the word of God is preached to these people, it grows up and it grows down. It penetrates the surface. It extracts the moisture. It is faithful in the midst of tribulation and trials. And in fact, it is not overcome by the weeds, but it is fruitful. It is productive. You know, what's really interesting about this passage, when you look at where the seed falls, the seed falls along the paths. It fell on the rock. And it fell among the thorns. But the seed fell into the good soil. It penetrates. It is fruitful. It changes. It it transforms. An example of this is what Jesus is angling for at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. He says in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Weedy soil. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built the house on the ground without a foundation when the streams broke against it it immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great this is an awesome analogy isn't it is the idea of building and structure you know someone is receiving the word of god with a good heart when they build their life on jesus With the weedy soil, they kind of have the structure of their life and they try to fit Jesus into it, but then he's out of it, right? They won't pull out the weeds. They won't make those difficult decisions. But those who hold fast with patience, with a noble and good heart, when they hear the word of God, they think, I better do it. I better do it. Does the Bible say I can only marry a Christian? Well, I'm dating a non-Christian. I guess this relationship is over. Does the Bible say I should not neglect the assembly of the saints? Well, my job makes me work on Sundays. Hmm. I'll get a new job. Does the Bible say that it is better to gouge out my eye or cut off my hand than to look at porn? Hmm. I look at porn on my iPhone. I'll get rid of my iPhone. Does the Bible say I should lay up treasures in heaven? Hmm. Okay, I'll start giving. Right? It's that simple. And when people agonize and they just say, I don't know. Maybe there's a way I can lay up treasures in heaven by uh, just showing up at church and just giving the benefit of my presence instead of giving any financial gifts to the Lord. Or, you know, maybe I can still, you know, work on Sunday but worship God in my heart as I'm working. And they're all trying to work around. Instead of someone who just says, this is what the Word of God says, I'm going to do it. You build your life around the Word of God. Jesus says it, you do it. Those with a good heart 
hear the word of God and they heed the word of God. That is the good soil. Now, how does somebody get this good heart? Right? Isn't that a question? It's not instinctive. We know from Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Next time somebody tells you to follow your heart, beware. Beware. If you ever think about my heart will go on, hopefully it won't go on like this. Deceitful above all things. What you need is a new heart. One promise in Ezekiel 36, 26 or 27. God tells the wayward people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Essentially, there's a promised spirit where you become born again. That's a biblical phrase. Born again. You are transformed. All of a sudden, you see the word of God in a whole new way. Uh, it's not just ancient literature. It's not ch- chicken soup for the, the soul. It is God's revelation that's telling you authoritatively about who he is, what he asks of you. You change your life around it. Now, some of you, you hear all of this about God disguising his word, Jesus disguising his word. You have to be born again. You need a heart transformation. And you just think, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to live my life and just hope that God zaps me. If he wants me to believe, he'll have to be doing the believing for me. That makes no sense. What are you even talking about? Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. That's more than an invitation to try to decode the parable. That's an invitation to come to him, and he'll decode it for you. If you want to understand the word of God, and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm on board with this, then you go to Jesus. Seek, and you will find. That's the promise. But some of you think, man, I want to receive the word, but I just have this divided heart that just really troubles me. I just don't know. If you're asking those questions, that's a good sign. That shows that you're not hardened soil. The fact that you hear the word of God and you're troubled by your response, it shows that you're not the rocky soil. I'm sorry, you're not the, you're not the, the road soil. Okay, there's no growth there. It doesn't penetrate at all. The fact that you are even in church this morning, that says something, doesn't it? The fact that you guys are still awake (laughs) says something. But that is not sufficient because we see the other three soils. The seed on the rock, the seed on the weeds, and the good soil. There's growth in all of them. There's growth in all of them. But you know what the, the road soil, rocky soil, and weedy soil all have in common? In each case, the seed is wasted. The seed is wasted. Only those that hold fast to the word of God with a noble, 
and good heart will yield the fruit that God intends. God didn't sow seed so it would be perish. He yielded seed so that it would go and bear fruit. And ultimately in Jesus' day, right, he, he sowed the seed. And what happened to those crowds, right? They shrunk. They were whittled away. Most of them left. He was panning for disciples and he just had a few flecks of gold at the end. But what did those disciples do? Well, when you read the sequel of the book of Luke, which is a book of Acts, these little grains of gospel believers bore fruit, didn't they? A hundredfold. A hundredfold. A miracle took place in their life. The seed was held to. They held it fast. They weren't seduced by the world like Judas, right? They weren't driven away by persecution, at least permanently. They held fast and they bore much fruit. And you saw that years later, years after he gave this parable. So was Asbury a revival? Was Asbury a revival? Well, there, there are many good signs. For instance, when the revivalist spoke, he, he did an exposition of Romans 12. And he brought up the 30 commands given in Romans 12. And he concluded the message with this. He says, and I quote, You can't love the way that this verse speaks. You cannot love until you are loved by Jesus. We love God because God first loved us. And if you want to become love in action, then you have to experience the love of God. Now, this was not an impressive sermon. I remember talking to a friend of mine who watched the sermon, and he just said, it was... Mm. So the fact that it had that kind of power, it wasn't in the presentation. It had the weight of Romans behind it. They responded. And to give credit to the president of Asbury University, Timothy Tennant, he said this, Only if we see lasting transformation, which shakes the comfortable foundations of the church and truly brings us all to a new, deeper place, can we look back in hindsight and say, yes, this has been a revival. So, what's the answer? Just wait and see. Do they hold fast to the word? with a noble and good heart. Is there lasting transformation? I think that's fair. But you know, sometimes we can just ask, is this a revival? I think we long for it. We long for it. We, we long to see a transformation in our society. But you know, there's probably a better question to ask than is the Asbury revival a true revival? The better question to ask is, has my heart been revived? Namely, how does my heart respond to the Word of God? Is the Word of God enough to get you to change? Do you crave it? Long for it? Does it make a meaningful impact in your life? And if the answer is, I don't know, then I would encourage you 
to keep reading, keep praying, perhaps talk to somebody about it. And just understand that when the word of God speaks, it is God speaking. And good soil hearts hear the word, receive the word, and heed the word. Again, the question shouldn't be, is Asbury revival? The best question you can ask yourself is this. Has God's word revived my heart? Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for your word and all that it teaches about itself and about our hearts. And I pray for you know, just these dear brothers and sisters and, and our guests in this audience. Perhaps some of them know they're on the outside looking in. Perhaps they're thinking about walking back from the faith because of some form of persecution or uh, small or otherwise that keeps them from a full commitment to you. Or perhaps they know that there are some weeds in their life that they, to this point they haven't been willing to pull. I pray that they will long to be the good soil, that they'll build their life around the word, their hearts will be soft and tender whenever the word of God is taught. That if they see it in scripture, they'll have that inner compulsion to say, this must be done. And that you will give them a harvest of righteousness. And that they will be fruitful, fruitful Christians. I pray that all of us will long to be good soil Christians and that you will build a harvest of righteousness within this church and beyond. And Lord, naturally we do pray for revival but we know that revival starts with our own response to the word, and so help us to focus on that. In Christ's name, amen.